The Whole Health Cure with Dr. Sharon Berquist, the podcast that brings you inspiration and skills for living a healthy and fulfilled life. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Whole Health Cure podcast. I'm Dr. Sharon Berquist, a lifestyle medicine, healthy aging, and prevention expert. Each week on this podcast, we have in-depth, behind-the-scenes conversations about lifestyle approaches to health and healing to help you live your happiest, healthiest, and most fulfilling life. Let's get started. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Brian Asbell. Dr. Asbell is originally from Columbia, South Carolina. He graduated from Davidson College, majoring in biology, and received his medical degree from Medical University of South Carolina. He completed his internship and residency in internal medicine and met his wife at the University of Virginia. He completed his cardiology fellowship training at Medical University of South Carolina and subsequently joined Asheville Cardiology Associates, where he served as an invasive non-interventional cardiologist until 2020. He additionally completed board certification in clinical lipidology, received a certificate in plant-based nutrition from eCornell, and completed board certification in lifestyle medicine. He co-founded Ruckus Health in 2020, whose vision it is to support people holistically in uncovering their innate ability to live in physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual balance. He also serves as the medical director of the cardiac rehab program for Mission Health and the medical director for the Plant Strong Immersion Programs. He is married with two boys. He enjoys cooking, eating, reading, hiking, and spending as much time outside as possible. Brian, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Sharon. Pleased to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's been a while since uh, we had you as a guest last time. So I'm very excited to be talking about heart disease risk and plant-based diets. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, Brian, let me um, kind of start by asking you a question that is coming up a lot, I know, in my practice. Um, and it's really this question of once a person has heart disease, um, what we can do. So I want to start by first asking you, how, what are the ways we can assess a person's risk of heart disease? That comes up a lot for me. I, it's one of my, my uh, most commonly encountered patient questions, and it's a fun discussion for me because it really allows us to sort of dive into the art of medicine. You know, it's not, it's not a cookbook approach here, and that makes it fun. Also makes it sometimes uncertain. So what I started, when I, when I have, I first divided into primary and secondary prevention. Secondary prevention, of course, if you've had an event, heart attack, a stent, stroke, abdominal aortic aneurysm, peripheral arterial disease, then you're in the secondary prevention camp. And those guidelines are a little bit more established. It's more fun for me to have that conversation with someone who doesn't know whether or not they have disease, say elevated cholesterol, and the doctor says, hey, you need to be on a statin, kind of reflexively sometimes. What I first do for those patients is I go to the ASCVD risk calculator, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk calculator, and or the MESA, M-E-S-A, multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis calculator, and give them a score. And based on that score, low, intermediate, or high risk, then we can have a more educated conversation around what is your specific risk here. Is the cholesterol being part of that equation, but not the, the determining factor. And then what's really fun is to refine that even more and consider doing some sort of imaging test. You could do a carotid intima thickness test, but I, I like coronary artery calcium scoring uh, because it's cheap. 
it's widely available. Uh, it doesn't require any, any dye, you know, very little radiation. And that is super helpful to me because if you have a coronary artery calcium score that's high, then I know that you have some cholesterol buildup. You have what we call subclinical disease. And that, that conversation is very different. Yeah. And, and it, that is so important, right? Because so much of the goal of prevention is not waiting until people have, you know, as you mentioned, that first group where they have some event or some symptoms and so much of the heart of medicine, so much of what we do is trying to catch people at this earlier stage. So we have this wide window of doing some type of intervention, like you said, whether it's um, pharmaceutical or alternative and deciding whether they need um, one or the other. Let's dig a little bit more into that. So you mentioned two formulas and some risks, like you mentioned cholesterol. So um, how do these calculation tools work and um, how do we personalize that risk? So there, those calculators are widely available. Um, I have them on my phone. There are apps on my phone. I'll pull them up as we're talking. And you enter in data such as, they're a little bit different in terms of which data points are entered, but you enter in uh, age, sex, family history, presence or absence of hypertension, high blood pressure. You put in the specific cholesterol numbers. You put in the actual blood pressure numbers, whether or not you're on a statin, whether or not you're on a blood pressure medication, uh, whether or not you may be diabetic, all this, this information goes into that. And then based on that, you get this risk score. I, I do often refine it with that coronary calcium score. The calcium score, the MESA risk calculator will include the coronary artery calcium score. It'll give you your risk, 10-year risk. These, these both, by the way, both calculators give you your 10-year risk of an event, uh, heart attack or stroke in the ASCVD and heart attack in the MESA risk score. And that is interesting to plug in some numbers and put in different calcium scores and see how much that risk score changes based on that calcium score, which is really a very good predictor of future cardiovascular risk. And, and there's so much there, Brian, because the first tool you mentioned, the ASCVD, it's primarily based on traditional risk factors, right? These are done yes. by population-based studies, right? Um, we know from large studies observing people who have diabetes, there's a higher risk of coronary arterial disease, et cetera. So these are algorithms created where they weight that risk and give you that predictive score. The MESA risk tool, the, the important difference there, right, is you're putting in personalized information from the coronary arterial calcium CT. Um, I'm curious what your experience is in terms of how good they correlate or not correlate. I can certainly share with you mine, but I'm curious to see what you um, observe. They're slightly different on their, um, on their uh, levels of risk. For example, a seven and a half percent score on the ASCVD calculator would be equivalent to a somewhere in the four to 6% range on the MESA risk calculator. My experience is that um, both of them may, uh, ASCVD risk may slightly overestimate risk has been my experience. MESA seems to be a little more uh, predictive in my experience. But again, we're both, we're, in both cases, we're looking at 10 years. So it's, it's hard to, to really be objective about that. Did I, did I talk to you about your MESA risk score? I, I didn't document it here in my chart from seven years ago. Did you, you know, 
it's hard to trace that back. It'd be interesting to look at uh, at the data. I, I'm interested to hear your experience. The same. I find that yeah. they don't really correlate very okay. well. Um, yeah. So very similar. And so there are a couple of really important, important things you brought up. One is besides cholesterol, which we tend to strongly associate with risk of heart disease, to decide how to manage that cholesterol. We have to look at the big picture, this global, what is your risk of heart disease and treat people differently based on that risk. And then adding in the coronary CT gives us even more information. Um, how do you approach people who, first of all, just have high cholesterol and you're trying to decide um, do you have to treat them? How are you going to treat them? You know, I, I do think that has to be individualized. And I think we do them a great disservice when we say that the answer is a statin and we don't talk to them, for example, about plant-based nutrition. If you go back and look at uh, Dean Ornish's data from around 1990, this is when I was graduating from medical school and it's finally sort of having its moment. He randomized patients. He did diagnostic angiography or heart cath on all these patients, on the patients, randomized them into two groups. One got optimal medical therapy, 60% of whom were on statins, because remember, this is 1990. That's when the 4S trial came out. This is the early days of statin use. Today, optimal medical therapy group, you know, 95, 98% of patients would be on statins because we actually get graded based on whether our patients leave the hospital on a statin. Uh, the other group was randomized to his program, which included whole food, plant-based nutrition, physical activity, stress management, and group support. Five years later, everyone else, everyone had another heart catheterization. The optimal medical therapy group had 28% progression of their blockage, despite the fact that 60% were on statins. The Ornish group had about an 8% regression of their coronary disease. And that was with none of them being on a statin. And interestingly, both groups, there was about the same 20% or so reduction in LDL, bad cholesterol levels. So I, I've, I believe the data. I have treated patients with plant-based nutrition for eight years now. And I've seen some, you know, really some, nothing short of miraculous recoveries. I know that it works. In fact, the reason that I ended up in, in lifestyle medicine in the first place was a patient that I treated with plant-based nutrition. Three months later, after changing, going all in, whole food, plant-based, no oil diet from the standard American diet, he had had a 100-point decrease in his cholesterol levels. He was on a statin and Zetia. I stopped his Zetia and I reduced his statin. And I said, look, you know, there's nothing I could have done for you pharmacologically that would have been as impactful as simply changing the way you ate. And so that was the beginning of it for me. So I tell, I share with patients, you know, the statins are the standard of care treatment in Western medicine. It's easy, it's quick, it's inexpensive. And frankly, it's pretty safe. About 8% 8, 8 of people or so will have some side effects, but most people tolerate their statins beautifully and can remain on them for years with no problems and they do work. But I believe that you should at least know that you have the option of treating this with a nutritional focus. And that the data that we have suggests that that is actually more effective than the statins. Now, it takes, takes the right person, takes the right motivation, takes the right uh, support for that person to be successful. But, uh, and sometimes, it, frankly, it's a hybrid approach. You know, the patient starts off with plant-based nutrition, and then we decide if we should add the statin. Or started off on the statin, adopts plant-based nutrition, and then we wean the statin. So it's very individualized, as you said.
And I want to go back to you mentioned, you know, the group that has their cholesterol treated with a statin still had progression, whereas the group on the lifestyle yeah. intervention um, showed improvement. If a person is taking a statin and their cholesterol meets the recommended levels mm-hmm. and they're still having progression, what is going on? Why is that happening? Yeah, that's a good question and brings up another question. Uh, there are, it's not a single determinant. There are a lot of factors involved in determining risk of progression of coronary disease, uh, stabilization of plaques. Um, I don't really have a good answer for you uh, why those patients still have what we call residual risk, even if their numbers are quote at guideline. The, the risk of an, an event is dramatically decreased, but that risk is not zero. Um, what is interesting, and it's not the question that you asked, that's where my mind went, is what do we do with patients who are, for example, I, this comes up a lot for me, they're eating plant-based and their numbers are still not down to those levels that would be recommended based on the statin literature, the, a wealth of data. And then the question is, should I, is there a benefit for me? Do I still need a statin if I'm eating plant-based? I had a really interesting and fun conversation with Dr. Michael Clapper, uh, who many of your listeners may know. I've, I've talked to him about this issue now twice. Uh, he refers to this as the tyranny of the numbers. And I don't think we know the answer, but I think it's a fun conversation because if you're, say your LDL is 110 and your non-HDL is 140, that's not near the guidelines for someone with established vascular disease. But if you're eating plant-based, his argument would be, let's measure inflammatory markers because we know that this process is that the cholesterol becomes oxidized, collects in the arteries, that activates the immune system, the white blood cells come and eat the cholesterol, start to secrete this substance, substances called matrix metalloproteinases, which degrade the cap, this walling off the cholesterol from the circulating blood. So when that cap ruptures and the cholesterol is exposed to the circulating blood, a blood clot forms and that's a heart attack and sudden cardiac death remains the number one cause, number one symptom of symptomatic coronary disease, and that's that's unacceptable. So he would say, check the inflammatory markers. If the inflammatory markers are low, then we're not gonna worry as much about the cholesterol being high because we know nothing's gonna happen because we've taken inflammation out of the picture. My, I get it biochemically, it makes great sense to me. My problem with that is we don't have any evidence that that's the case. And I, I love evidence-based medicine when we know exactly what the trial showed. And the trial showed you'd be better on X versus Y. I'm going to give you X, or at least I'll talk to you about both, but I'm going to encourage you to choose X. So that's a fun conversation. I don't think we know the answer. Um, It makes me a little nervous, quite honestly, as a cardiologist and lipidologist to leave someone with those numbers, even if they've gone, you know, hundred percent plant-based, I still say, "Hmm, let's talk about that. Maybe, maybe a low dose statin would make, make me feel better. So I'm still on the fence there. And that scenario, I'm glad you brought up, Ryan, because I see that a lot. People are doing the right thing, if you will, in terms of diet and exercise, following things pretty well, feeling great, but their cholesterol isn't a goal. Um, And you'd like to think that by doing all the things that we know, dilate vessels, increase nitric oxide, reduce inflammation, that theoretically that improves outcomes. And, And to your point, 
in terms of evidence-based medicine, it's not always an either or, right? It could be the best of all worlds, bringing the cholesterol down below dose statin and still knowing that you're reducing risk further with all those interventions. You mentioned inflammation and measuring inflammation. So it brings up the topic, how can we measure if people are reducing risk beyond just checking cholesterol. So we can do C-reactive protein, even high sensitivity, but it's a peripheral marker, right? Meaning that if a person catches it, a cold or a sinus infection, it's going to skew that result. So are there ways to gauge if a person is benefiting from a plant-based diet? Can we measure it? We can. There are other inflammatory markers that we can measure. Uh, High sensitivity CRP, which you mentioned, is probably the best well-known and has the most uh, data in the literature to support it. Uh, And it is affected positively by lifestyle changes, plant-based diet, good sleep, uh, stress management, reducing cortisol levels, uh, exercise, et cetera. We know we have that data. There are other inflammatory markers. I will often uh, use another, a couple of others. Uh, one is myeloperoxidase or MPO, uh, which is a, uh, really a good marker of risk of plaque rupture. So I find that useful. Uh, another one that I will commonly consider is oxidized LDL. Oxidized LDL is not looking just at the LDL back cholesterol, but that cholesterol, which is oxidized, affected by free radicals which is what stimulates the white blood cells to come and eat the cholesterol in the first place. So that's a high risk cholesterol. And all of those numbers, HSCRP, MPO, and uh, and oxidized LDL are reduced in patients eating a plant-based diet uh, or eating a plant-forward diet. So uh, there's good data around that. Uh, There's something called the Dietary Inflammatory Index which was developed by a researcher, a friend of mine, actually at University of South Carolina in Columbia. Uh, and they have a lot of published data around anti-inflammatory foods. Uh, lots of herbs and spices also have great anti-inflammatory properties as, as, uh, as you know, and others know turmeric, for example. So uh, there's ways to measure that. And I'm going to ask a question that I'm sure many people listening to this who may have been told that they have some pre-existing coronary buildup on a coronary CT um, may have or or just plain old high risk. Can you reverse heart disease? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. So there's two people that have done research in that that area. Uh, One was Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn and the other was Dean Ornish. And we've We've sort of talked about Ornish. I, you know, I think a lot of the patients that were enrolled in our Ornish cardiovascular rehab program at Mission Hospital in Asheville um, really were there because of this, this promise of cardiovascular disease reversal. And one of the most common questions I got asked by those uh, participants in that program was, when do we look again? And it was kind of hard to explain to them that we're not going to look again. What? You know, I want to know that my blockage is going away. And I, I would always tell them, look, As a clinical cardiologist, I really don't care whether you have a 40% blockage or it's been reduced to a 35% blockage. What I care about is that you don't have symptoms related to that and that you don't have an event related to that. From a symptom standpoint, the Ornish group had a 90% decrease in angina. The medical therapy group had about 165% increase in angina, despite the fact that they were on anti-anginals again over five years. The Ornish group had two and a half fold lower 
risk of major adverse cardiovascular events compared to the optimal medical therapy group. So what matters to me, although I'm intrigued by the, the concept of cardiovascular disease reversal, I'm more interested in those clinical outcomes. The Esselstyn did something similar. He didn't randomize patients. He had about 190 patients and they were sent to him because they were basically inoperable. Diffuse disease, there's nothing to stent, there's nothing to bypass. You know, I've been basically being told, we can't help you. And so they came to Dr. Esselstyn out of desperation. And he, uh, his program was somewhat different from Ornish's. It was nutritional program only. And they were referred to a whole food, plant-based, no oil, low fat, 10% of calories from fat diet. And he followed those patients clinically. He did demonstrate a reversal on angiography, on heart catheterizations, but that wasn't on every patient. He did demonstrate, quote, reversal by showing increased blood flow on functional testing, like a stress test, st nuclear stress test or stress echocardiogram. They clearly improved. And by the way, very quickly, and that was, as you referred to earlier, that was based on increased production of nitric oxide by the lining of the blood vessel, the endothelium. And that's definitely something that plants uh, will improve. So, um, and he showed that in the adherent group, and by the way, at four to five years, about 85% of patients in both of those data sets, Ornish and Esselstyn, were compliant with that eating pattern. So I get a little bit tired of hearing that people say, oh, patients will never do it because they will. And in the adherent group, Esselstyn had 89% adherent. Their four years uh, event rate was 2%. So 11% were not adherent and their four year event rate was 62%. So again, dramatic, dramatic reductions in clinical outcomes. And that's, that's, that's what matters. And how about with hydostatin and coronary arterial disease reversal? Um, we have shown, uh, there was actually a reversal study uh, looking with high-dose uh, atorvastatin, generic uh, Lipitor. And we got patients' LDLs down to 70, less than 70 range, in that 50 to 70 range. Um, we did not have documented reversal. Uh, we did have lack of progression. Uh, we did not show reversal. Um, we did show uh, that there was a decrease in uh, major adverse cardiovascular events, fatal and non-fatal heart attacks, uh, sudden death. But uh, the, the, the reduction was not as strong as what we've seen with the limited data from nutritional interventions. And frankly, it's, not, it's been my clinical experience, although somewhat anecdotal, admittedly, uh, my clinical experience over 20 years has, has been the same. Yeah, same here. Um, and Brian, you know, we've talked about the Esselstein program, the Ornish program and plant-based diets. Can you explain a little more if a person listening to this wants to change their lifestyle, eat the quote, you know, of beneficial foods, there's so much out there of what, what should you be eating? So in these trials and the people who've shown the improvement, what are the specifics of what a person should eat and what a person should not eat and, and the rest of the lifestyle component around that? Well, I, th I think that um, I think there's so much good data out there. I, I would direct people uh, to the Blue Zones uh, organization as well. You know, they they've looked at those people around the world who not only live to be a hundred years old or, or older, 
but we're thriving at that age. And that's really what we're all after, right? We're all after improved vitality, improved health, not more health care. And I think the blue zones were very helpful because what they showed is that those people in these diverse regions around the world who were thriving into their 90s and beyond, what were, they, what were the commonalities that they had? One of the commonalities that they had was they were eating a very much a plant-forward diet. They were getting about 95% of their calories daily from plant-based sources, meaning fruits, vegetables, beans, nuts, seeds, uh, whole grains. Uh, that's not perfect. That's not 100% plant-based, but that's what they were doing. They were eating meat, meaning uh, fish, fowl, and pork and beef. Uh, they were eating about four to five ounces of, of servings of meat about four to five times a month. And, you know, you're in Atlanta, I'm in Western North Carolina, I grew up in South Carolina. There've been plenty of times that I've seen patients and myself included when I was younger, I'd eat that much before, before going to school or before going to work in one day, you know, bacon, sausage, all that. So um, I think that that in, informs us uh, I think that um, I think the goal should be uh, get as close to plant perfect as you can, recognizing that the best outcomes, uh, multiple epidemiologic and some randomized trials have shown that a plant-centered diet is associated with the best outcomes for prevention of, treatment of, and even reversal of multiple chronic diseases that we see, not just cardiovascular disease, but lots of other things as well, dementia, certain cancers, um, et cetera. And, and I'm glad you brought up the topic of, you know, this role of meat in the diet, because I think a lot of my patients, maybe yours, have cut back, if not eliminated red meat, but there's mm -hmm. still this category of white meat, right? Chicken, which um, I think a lot of people consume how important is it to cut back, if at all, it, you know, on that in a plant-based diet for heart disease prevention yeah. or reversal? It's important. I mean, an ounce of prevention is worth a, pound, worth a pound of cure. So I think that if you have a calcium score that was mildly abnormal, you know, a calcium score of 78, which would be associated with very mild coronary disease, completely asymptomatic, 42 years old, and you're interested in prevention, I think that you have a little more wiggle room there. And I would say, you know, I would get as far as you can get to the plant-based end of the spectrum. I personally, I would say if you're not, you, you've got any, any progress is progress, but I really want you to get into the nineties at least. And the best outcomes, frankly, are at close to hundred for the reversal patient. I would say, you know, you've upped the ante a little bit, right? You have coronary disease. Uh, if you have angina, exertional chest pain, then that is um, really a very, very helpful thing because if you're eating clean, you're not going to have angina, increased nitric oxide. And if you're not, when you eat meat or any oil, actually, it will blunt that ability of the endothelium to produce nitric oxide. So you kind of self-regulate based on your symptoms. But if you're a reversal patient, I'd say, look, the only data we have that shows reversal is with really a, a plant-based diet, completely plant-based. The exception in the Ornish uh, world was egg whites, not egg yolks, because of the amount of cholesterol, about 212 milligrams per yolk, and uh, no fat dairy. And I think no fat dairy was just uh, um, trying to appeal to people who said, I can't give up my cheese. Uh, I think 
if you've tried no fat dairy, you know that that may be sort of a waste of waste of culinary effort. Uh, you know, it's the the joke about the the firefighters who called to the vegan house after the house burned to the ground, and the only thing that didn't melt was the cheese. So, uh, you know, no fat cheese is is uh, it, it fails on the taste test. Yeah, and and that's really helpful. I think dairy eggs are another point where, um, you know, how important is it to cut back on, um, you know, everyone agrees on fruits and vegetables. Most people agree on eliminate the red meat. And these are now these shades of gray of how important is it because they're a little harder to give up for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I appreciate you kind of shedding some light on that. Um, Brian, with the time you have left, is there anything that you wish all of your patients knew that you want to share with our audience? You know, I just, I went into lifestyle medicine and, and into the Ornish program. I was really focused on nutrition and physical activity because I could get my head around the data. I've seen the data. I use that data in discussions with patients all the time. Uh, and I believe in, in it, obviously. We spent a lot of time talking about that. I was dabbling myself at the time in the stress management piece. And, and I would say some of the data for Ornish suggests that that is actually more impactful in reducing cardiovascular events than the physical activity time. If you had 30 minutes and you only have 30 minutes, maybe yoga and meditation would be better for your heart than the physical activity even. So my personal experience with that stress management piece is that it's been transformational in my life. The other piece is that the group support piece, that the community's love and support of the other people going through the program was always mentioned as the most critical part of the program, the glue that held everything else together. So I really think that we can't transform this medical system and we can't be, we can't live the kind of lives that we want to live individually without um, embracing the fact that this is going to be always a community effort. So, you know, it's so hard to do these things by yourself. It's so hard to change the way you eat, str manage stress, exercise when, you, when you're alone in that effort. So link arms with somebody, anybody. Uh, and and reach out to them and and support them and be supported by them, and that really is that's the key. That's the key, not only to success here, but frankly, I, I believe it's the key to uh, your whole life experience. So, uh, that is such true um, advice. I mean, we see that so much in our programs, and I also want to point out that in the Ruckus Health and the program you've developed, you're really. Um, kind of walking the walk, right? You offer programs, so you, and you offer that kind of support one-on-one -on -one with your patients. So, thank you for creating a way for people interested in this to have the option of knowing that there are physicians that can help them one-on-one. -on -one, creating a process, a system, um, really a whole practice that you've created to be able um, to guide people in this way. Um, and, and for all the work you've done in, in cardiology throughout all the years. So thank you for everything that you do. Thank you. Thank you. Incredibly fulfilling. And I appreciate certainly everything you're doing as well. Keep it up. Thank you. The Whole Health Cure is brought to you by Emory Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness. For more information about wellness assessments, classes, and other resources, please visit our website, emoryhealthcare.org slash livewell. This material is copyrighted by Emory University.